Welcome to this edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Beaming your way via podcast from San Francisco. Listeners help support this program, and I'm grateful to Rick and Catherine Arndt of Boise, Idaho, and Keita Tom of Corvallis, Oregon. Thanks for your ongoing support of the Peter B. Collins Show. If you can help, log on to PeterBCollins.com and click the tab that says you can help. Here comes the next installment of the Boiling Frogs interview series, co-hosted with Sabelle Edmonds. And our guest today is a man who is no stranger to you who listen to the Peter B. Collins Show, Andy Worthington, the author of The Guantanamo Files, a courageous British journalist who shames the American media by providing detailed coverage of the American gulag. And the anniversary is a measure of the failure of the Obama administration to keep the promise that the president made with a flourish to close Guantanamo Bay. And in this conversation, Andy Worthington details those failures, particularly with the citizens of Yemen who remain detained at Guantanamo and may be in limbo for a long time because of the foiled Christmas Day bombing in Detroit. I encourage you to log on to Andy's website and get the latest information. It's andyworthington.co.uk. Thank you for listening to the Peter B. Collins Show. Welcome to Boiling Frogs. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. illegal domestic wiretapping, FBI's national security letters, state secret privilege, TSA's one million plus no-fly list, persecution of government whistleblowers, perpetual wars, rendition and torture. Can you feel the water boiling? Welcome to the Boiling Frogs with Sibel Edmonds. I'm Peter B. Collins. Our guest today is British journalist and author Andy Worthington. He's the author of The Guantanamo Files, the stories of the 774 detainees in America's illegal prison. He is also a filmmaker and principal in the new documentary called Outside the Law, Stories from Guantanamo. And he was on a U.S. tour in October of 2009 and screened the documentary in New York, Washington, Berkeley, and Los Angeles. He joins us from London. Andy Worthington, welcome to the Boiling Frogs. Well, hello, Peter. Hello, Sibel. Welcome. I've had the pleasure of talking with you about a sordid topic uh, on numerous occasions now, Andy, and I regard you as uh, the world's uh, leading expert on the gulag that uh, we have created at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and by extension, uh, other secret prisons that existed or may continue to exist. And as an American, um, I am embarrassed and ashamed that our nation uh, developed a torture strategy that was based on torturing the law and torturing the language of the law. In fact, torturing the very definition of what uh, amounts to torture. And many of us were uh, buoyed by the change in administration and the campaign promise that Barack Obama acted on in his second day in office uh, with a bit of a flourish, promising to close the prison at Guantanamo. And as we'll discuss, uh, it appears that he will come up short on that commitment. And there are many other areas where the Obama administration has not only disappointed, but shocked me by extending some of the bad legal principles, the uh, aggregation of uh, additional power in the executive branch at the expense of the uh, legislature and the courts, and as we have seen, uh, the Roberts Supreme Court 
uh, has surprised many progressives in the United States by uh, overturning uh, positions taken by the executive branch and by the Congress on these very issues. Tell us, Andy, what first got you interested in America's detention center at Guantanamo Bay and the plight of the 774 individuals, most of whom are absolutely innocent of any terrorism connections? Well, you know, the thing that I suppose got me interested um, was that um, I think from the very beginning it was obvious to to people who were um, scrutinizing who who had been in charge after the 9-11 attacks, you know, when sadly uh, we got to look at Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld um, being in charge of so many things that this was potentially going to be rather dangerous. And I think, you know, the moment that Guantanamo opened on January the 11th, 2002, when we saw these horrific images of um, the, the guys in the orange jumpsuits with the, with the goggles and with the masks and uh, bent over and shackled with, with the, these military guys shouting at them in this strange, hostile environment they'd been taken to that was clearly beyond the law, um, you know, something had gone badly wrong. Um, and it took me a number of years, really, to... to um, start to want to investigate it thoroughly. And, of course, it was very hard in those years for anybody, even if they had the will, to find anything out about the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really began looking in detail at stories of prisoners that I could find, sort of released prisoners and um, whatever stories had managed to emerge from the prison um, about four years ago, really. And when I really started work full-time on it, um, it coincided with when the, the administration had been obliged to release the names and nationalities of the prisoners. Finally, this was four years and two months after the prison opened. Mm-hmm. You know, at which point family members of these guys, a lot of them still didn't know, you know, where their sons, where their, where their children, where their brothers were. Um, and also at that time, they, they released 8,000 pages of documents relating to the prisoners, allegations compiled by the Department of Defense, and transcripts of the combatant status review tribunals and administrative review boards, um, these really poor excuses uh, for due process that had taken place at Guantanamo, directly in response to the Supreme Court ruling in 2004 that the prisoners had habeas corpus rights. Instead of giving, um, bringing them, you know, having um, court proceedings on the U.S. mainland as the Supreme Court intended, um, the government introduced these um, one-sided administrative reviews. Um, so the whole process was bent, but it allowed the prisoners um, in vast numbers, I mean, hundreds of them took part in these, uh, certainly at the beginning, mm-hmm. to actually um, tell their stories against these allegations and to start to highlight that there was a, a great disparity between what the government was saying on one hand and what the prisoners themselves were saying. And... Um, and so I really worked on that uh, over a, a process of many months and many sleepless nights to to forge a narrative out of all these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and 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 that that's what uh, how my book came about. That's what I've carried on drawing on and 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 augmenting in all the years since. And it still astonishes me, Peter. You know, we've spoken about this before, but it astonishes me that. Um, you know, no major newspaper or, or, or any other media outlet in the, in the States um, chose to embark upon that. Well, and Andy, just from a pure journalism perspective, uh, it's hard, it, it must have been hard for you to imagine when you undertook this uh, laborious work that you would have no competition, <laughs> that uh, the U.S. corporate media and even independent journalists would pass on the story, would avoid it, would say this is uh, too sensitive, too toxic, and it might get me in trouble. And like so many important issues uh, that, uh, that arose during the Bush-Cheney administration, we had to look to great journalists in the U.K. and uh, publications uh, like The Independent to bring to these shores the news that was suppressed or uh, just intentionally ignored by our corporate media here? Well, sure. I mean, I mean, it did surprise me as well, because, you know, I mean, these documents came out in 2006, so we'd, we'd kind of gone through the worst, you know. I mean, I think for the first few years after Guantanamo was opened, it was extremely difficult for people to really um, question it. 
Um, you know, and the lawyers were the ones really who took the lead and were very brave in those early days when they got considerable amount of hate mail. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, 2005 was when was when loads of the secret prison and rendition stories were coming out. By 2006, um, you know, I, I was I was astonished because the Associated Press had. Um, was one of the the parties in the the lawsuit that produced all this information. And they compiled, they kind of went through all these documents and and threw out about, you know, 50 or 60 stories, brief little compilations from from the various accounts that were available. Um, And then nobody else followed up. I mean, these little accounts went all around the world. Everybody just bought them off the AP. uh, And then the story went to sleep. And and I I couldn't believe it. Um, You know, and I still don't, because I think that the major problem with with, um, not challenging it enough, not investigating them, um, is that all those years it allowed the Bush administration's position to stand, um, which is, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, this is nearly four years I've been doing this now. I'm still chipping away endlessly, getting people, you know, in small numbers, one by one or whatever it is, getting more and more people who are prepared to understand that there's a more of a story coming up against the great myth, the great foundation myth of Guantanamo, the worst of the worst. And it really is, you know, eight years on, it, it's amazing how that myth still stands. And that's the one that those of us who've investigated it and who are trying to, to bring this story across are constantly chipping away at. Well, and Andy, just a brief anecdote, because during this very dark period, I was in steady contact with the Center for Constitutional Rights, New York-based, and also the American Civil Liberties Union, as they worked to represent unknown individuals who were held at Guantanamo. And one of the attorneys at CCR, who is now at Stanford University, Barbara Olshansky, told us a story that uh, really sent shivers down the spine. She received, uh, around Valentine's Day, I believe in the year 2005, but I'm not 100% sure that it wasn't 04, um, a list of all the people being held at Guantanamo. And it came from an officer there who was uh, assigned to Guantanamo who did not approve of this secrecy and lack of due process. And it came to the Center for Constitutional Rights in the form of a, an oversized Valentine's card. And when they received it, it threw them into a, a real conundrum because they had been seeking this information through legitimate channels by suing the government through the courts and had been shut down at every turn. And suddenly... They received this information, and their first suspicion was that this was a plant from our government intended to compromise the work of CCR, expose them as un-American, and marginalize their efforts to legally assist the prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. And in fact, when CCR and Olshansky got this list, they didn't publish it. They took it to the government and said... And said, we have received this. Now, what can we legally do with it? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, I've heard that story before, and I think it's very um, demonstrative of what was going on at that time, that, that clearly all of that was true. I mean, you know, my, my understanding of the story is that it wasn't a plant. I mean, it was somebody who, who was determined for the information to get out. But I understand, of course, why CCR were terrified. No, you, you're correct. Um, it was not a plant. And they ultimately did determine that. But the environment was such a police state, and they were so concerned that they would then become a target of the government and be unable to fulfill their own mission that they felt they had no choice. Well, sure. You know, and I mean, I have to say that it's still, you know, in terms of how, res- how restricted the lawyers are, and these are still are the only people, you know, who are allowed to see the prisoners at Guantanamo. I mean, to this day... They've been allowing people to have phone calls recently, but nobody has met any member of their family, unlike, say, the worst convicted criminal on the U.S. mainland. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're the only people who are allowed to see them, and they jump through hoops endlessly. They still do. And, you know, the rules change, and they have to, uh, you know, jump through different hoops. And they, uh, they, uh, there's been this long history for years of, uh, of, you know, just messing with the attorneys, really, making their lives 
uh, next to impossible. Um, but, you know, they have to strictly conform to everything that's laid down to them. They have to respect the fact that everything that, that takes place between them and their clients is presumptively classified until it's been cleared. When they want to get access to the classified information, they have to go to the secure facility in Washington, D.C., often at great expense. I mean, the whole thing is still, um, you know, the architecture is all still in place for this um, this mad experiment that, that stands outside of anything that really we would understand as a, as, a, as a normal prison environment. You know, plus the fact that, of course, these guys have never been charged or tried or convicted. Yeah. Well, uh, you're right, Andy. And let's compare this to uh, the case with uh, Bagram Prison in Afghanistan. For that prison, but for that prison, we don't have the list. We don't even no. have the actual number. These people have not been allowed to be visited or given right to any attorneys. And actually, nobody knows what kind of a dungeon it is. And according to a few reporters that we have spoken with and a few sources, who are in touch with people in Afghanistan, and they have pretty good sources, they put that number, the number of prisoners in Bagram, somewhere above 10,000, not the 800 to 1,000 uh, that we've been hearing from our government and the mainstream media. But how the, I mean, how would that be different in terms of the, the, the uh, abuses that we haven't even begun to cover in Afghanistan with Bagram, with Guantanamo? At least Guantanamo, to a certain degree, has been receiving some level of publicity. Well, sure. I mean, you know, the position that, um, that Bagram is in is, is the same as Guantanamo was sometime in two, early 2004. Right. Um, you know, let's say around the time that the Abu Ghraib scandal broke, before the U.S. Supreme Court allowed lawyers into Guantanamo, which broke the spell. Um, you know, it stopped. It stopped Guantanamo being this totally closed place. It was essentially it was the beginning of the end for what their project was, which was to keep everyone out. Um, so Bagram, yeah, it's an extraordinarily shocking story, whatever the figures are. And I've I've heard those figures, um, and and I have no way of knowing how it's possible to verify who's telling the truth. Um, but you know, we need information about about these people. And it's not really enough for us to have these supposed guarantees from the Obama administration that everybody is now being treated humanely. This certainly isn't the story that I've heard um, from people who've ended up um, being, being taken to Bagram recently. Um, and also, you know, everything about the place reeks of the same incompetence as Guantanamo. Yeah. That people are being, you know, and the same as Iraq, let's face it, where, you know, what was the, what was the number that was held at one point? Somewhere getting up to 20,000 people were held in Iraq at one point in U.S. custody. Mm -hmm. and, and what was the primary way in which people were captured? It was huge cordon and capture operations where, you know, every, every man was seized and taken. Um, and, then, and then, you know, some slow, um, incredibly slow process of trying to work out who the hell was there and what on earth they were supposed to do with them. Um, you know, and all of this is so far from what I think is everybody's understanding of how you're supposed to treat prisoners in wartime, that actually, you know, this bigger picture really distresses me that we hardly hear about um, how, how prisoners are treated when they're captured in a war. We've heard Obama speak about, you know, uh, the Army Field Manual, making sure that's reintroduced for interrogations, humane treatment, respecting the Geneva Conventions. But as far as I can see, um, that's not what we're getting at Bagram. Um, and that's not what we're led to believe has been reintroduced. Um, and, you know, I find that deeply shocking. And, Andy, let's back up for a moment, and if I could ask you to give us just a brief sketch of the fictional construct that the Bush administration embraced when they said, isn't this brilliant? We can go to this island that's not really part of the United States, but which we have a, a lease that uh, they reject our payments on from Cuba. And this is the place where we detained Haitian boat people who tried to uh, come to the United States during the Clinton administration. And the idea was that these people would be held beyond the reach of American courts, beyond the reach of the Geneva Conventions, 
and beyond the prying eyes of any international agencies like the Red Cross or Human Rights Watch who might attempt to monitor uh, the, these detention programs. And uh, the courts uh, were, uh, as I said in my introduction, they surprised me in overturning this fiction when the Bush administration was able to bring the Republican-controlled Congress and many recalcitrant Democrats along with it by playing fear cards and by whipping up nationalism and uh, an extreme hyped fear of al-Qaeda, usually right before election time. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, you know, um, I mean, the, the thing that happened with the courts, which, um, you know, I... I I, I'm not, I wouldn't say I was surprised, I, because I think that when it comes to, to points of law, the main, the main point that was put across by the lawyers who eventually succeeded, you know, after it bounced around the lower courts, eventually succeeded in persuading the Supreme Court to do this extraordinary thing, really, which was to grant habeas corpus rights to people who had been seized in wartime. Now, you don't, that doesn't happen normally. You you um, you set up a prisoner of war camp. You treat people according to the Geneva Conventions, and the courts have no right to intervene whatsoever unless there's going to be some dispute about when the hostilities come to an end, because you can hold people until the end of hostilities. Now, the point that the lawyers got the Supreme Court to, to acknowledge was, if there are people in this prison who claim that they are innocent, that they were seized by mistake. What avenue is there for them to pursue? And there was none. And the Supreme Court recognized that these people were trapped in a legal black hole. And that whoever you are, whether you're dealing with a, with a criminal case or with, with um, a case of, of people seized in wartime, um, these things had become confused, and the administration thought it had forged this perfect third way where it could actually hold people without any rights for as long as it felt like, possibly forever, mm -hmm. as it's intended. And they recognized that legally that was an abomination. Um, so, you know, I mean, I mean, that's obviously how it happened. I mean, the sad thing, really, with Guantanamo is that because the process of, uh, of filing suits and then filing appeals when they fail and then eventually the route that goes to the, to the Supreme Court is that we've seen these things move in two-year cycles each time there's been a major decision. And, of course, it took, you know, it took another four years for the men to, to um, go beyond having access to lawyers and actually being able to get into a courtroom with their habeas corpus petitions. That's only been happening for the last 14 months. Mm -hmm. um, primarily, you know, because of interference from the, the craven or stupid lawmakers who um, did exactly what the Bush administration wanted them to do and change the law. Yeah. Um, now, Andy, give us a quick overview. 774 was the total number of people held at Guantanamo since it opened in early 2002. From what we know now, what number or percentage of those detained were absolutely innocent of any connection to terrorism or the wars that the U.S. launched, particularly in Afghanistan? Oh, I would say if you're talking about terrorism, then, then you know, at least 95% of those people. Mm -hmm. um, now, you know, where we have to then, you know, break that definition down a little bit to understand quite what went on is that I have absolutely no hesitation in saying that hundreds of those people, maybe half of them, were completely innocent of any involvement with any militancy whatsoever. Yeah. The other half were people who um, had traveled to Afghanistan before the 9-11 attacks to uh, join the Taliban in what had been sold to them as, you know, their struggle to establish a pure Islamic state. Um, some, you know, in a lot of cases, they've f forgotten to tell them that it might have meant this kind of mad medieval pure Islamic state. Um, but be that as it may, um, you know, they'd been sold this idea of going to fight the Taliban, fight their enemies. Well, this was a civil war that had been going on for a very long time, and the enemies were actually other Muslims. This is before 9-11 before America entered the picture, when, you know, America had really had very little to do with Afghanistan for, for around um, 10 years or more. Um, so that's really the setup. And, you know, and of course, there are those very particular reasons as to why so many people who had nothing to do with terrorism were rounded up. And they really are just a few fundamental things. 
um, you know, the U.S. military was chucking money at people to hand over suspects in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Huge bounty payments based on ordinary incomes in that area. $5,000, apparently, and, um, you know, that's, um, by, by any reckoning, um, is somewhere between, you know, $125,000 or $250,000, um, depending on whether you're in Afghanistan or Pakistan, mm-hmm. as the equivalent. You know, would you, would you shop your neighbor for that, your rival, some stranger in the street? Well, a lot of people would, yeah. and a lot of people did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the other thing, this is really, um, you know, almost as shocking, actually, to me, is that, is that when these people were captured, the U.S. military was preparing to hold Article 5 tribunals under the Geneva Conventions, competent tribunals, um, which has, have been held in every war from Vietnam onwards. And this, this is, uh, according to the Geneva Conventions, it was championed by the United States from Vietnam onwards that if you're capturing people out of uniform, then you have to hold a tribunal close to the time and place of capture so these people can call witnesses, so that you can work out who you've actually got. You can work out whether you've captured soldiers or whether you've just captured all kinds of people that are caught up in the, in the general chaos. And the shocking statistic that always gets me about this is that nearly 1,200 of these were held during the, the Iraq War, um, the first Iraq War, um, and in three quarters of the cases, after these tribunals, the guys were sent home. They had the wrong people. Now, the military was ready to do this, and then the orders came from on high. So, you know, clearly from Donald Rumsfeld directly, consultation with Dick Cheney, we're not having the tribunals. Essentially saying, we're not making any mistakes. Everybody that we get is guilty. End of story. And, and that's what happened. And this, uh, this of course, is why... Guantanamo ended up as a place that when anybody who moved beyond the hyperbole actually scrutinized it, like Major General Dunleavy, who, um, you know, was no bleeding-heart liberal, mm-hmm. who was commander of the prison in 2002, referred to the shockingly large number of Mickey Mouse prisoners that kept being sent over to the prison from Afghanistan. Now, we never really hear much about the Mickey Mouse prisoners. I wish people would throw that back in Dick Cheney's face every time he speaks about the worst of the worst. But as I say, it's part of this, um, you know, this extraordinarily powerful message that they managed to, to sell to the American people. And you're politely, places, you're politely avoiding the term propaganda, but that's what they did. They created, they created the myth that anybody who was at Guantanamo was just by their presence, the worst of the worst, the most evil persons on earth. And therefore, these extraordinary measures, which uh, are in direct contradiction of our Constitution and our treaties, were not only necessary, but were, uh, you know, very valuable in keeping the American people safe. And from what you just described, uh, really a very small group of people fit that description who were actually held at Guantanamo. And as you point out in your documentary film, Outside the Law, Stories from Guantanamo, the individuals who were most innocent and who spoke English and were able to convey that to their captors and interrogators were often tortured the most and uh, just just really uh, barbarically treated because the the presumption was that they couldn't possibly be telling the truth. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> you know, and there were—I mean—that's one particularly good aspect of it that you've you've encapsulated there. The other one I would say is that it, it, it's become apparent to me that that part of it was an attempt to justify what they had going there. That there was an understanding um, at, at some high level um, of how things had gone wrong. Um, but you know, let's just let's just keep going with this way that we're doing things, and we we. I mean, I think I think at some point, somewhere down the line, people understood that false narratives were being conjured up here through the torture of prisoners or through the bribery of other prisoners or through the manipulation of prisoners who were, you know, in a, in a distressed mental state. There are a handful of, of pretty well-known um, informers within Guantanamo who seem to be responsible for, for uh, you know, a majority of the supposed evidence against the prisoners. <clears throat> and it's been in everybody's interest, it seems, not to admit um, how great the errors were 
um, and to keep pushing these cases and to, you know, even now that they're, the prisoners are having their day in court, the Obama administration has been carrying on the Bush administration's job of taking these, um, these tortured narratives, these stories that are invented because there was never any intelligence in the first place, in front of judges and hoping that they'll get away with it. Um, and it really is quite extraordinary. I mean, I think the, I think the, when you take all of these elements together, really, the absolute betrayal of, of not only of the law, but of fundamental principles of justice um, is what's so deeply shocking. And I really can't see any point at which, you know, let's say that this godforsaken place one day will come to an end. When historians look back on it, and not people like me slogging away at the cold face of, you know, while it's actually happening, that when historians look back on it, and when all these pieces are put together, I can't see that it's possible not to conclude, you know, what an extraordinary travesty of justice on every level the whole place has been. How would you describe the uh, mental state, you know, the psyche, the emotional state, and the attitude towards the United States of those you have interviewed, the people that have been released, who have been released? Well, you know, I have to say that the, most of the people that I've met in, in Britain, and I've met, people, I've met prisoners from other countries as well, um, have demonstrated the most extraordinary um, fortitude, the most extraordinary resilience. Um, and these are people who have accomplished this through two things, I think, primarily. You know, one is their faith, undoubtedly, um, and the other is the actual um, bonds of, of um, friendship and, and comradeship and, and strength between the prisoners in Guantanamo. I mean, this is a place that does its very best, or certainly has done its very best, and, uh, and is still doing in most cases, to isolate these men. I mean, the whole point of the program of being outside the law was to isolate them completely um, so that they couldn't communicate with each other. But they found ways to shout at each other. They found ways to pass messages to each other. They communicated. Um, you know, I know I, I met some people who have really struggled to cope with what has happened to them, and that's within a context of, of Western countries where there's a, a support network. Um, I, I, I can very easily imagine that, uh, that in some other places where, you know, where there isn't the medical foundation for victims of torture and the Helen Bamber Foundation like there is in the UK, the places where there, there isn't that kind of psychological support, that it can be very difficult for people to cope. Um, and, you know, and, and having looked at the realistic numbers of, of, of prisoners who have... Um, taken up arms in some kind of way after what's happened to them, um, which really genuinely um, seems to me to be, you know, a dozen at the most, you know, somewhere around that kind of figure. That includes Afghans who, you know, uh, uh, maybe went back and were fighting against an occupation of their country. It includes a handful of people who appear to have become involved in terrorism in the Gulf. Almost nobody, um, you know, seems to have suffered so much and become so enraged by what happened to them. And the main testament to that is that, is that if you ask most of these guys, you know, fundamentally, do you blame the Americans? Um, you know, they might say, well, look, you know, I've, I've got a real thing about the guys who implemented this. And yes, I'm not happy about them. But overall, this, isn't, this is bigger than that. This is what Allah willed. I don't know why. I don't know why I'm being tested. But that's, you know, that, that's the point of view. And, well, and I talk to people from the West who just don't understand that. They, and all they understand is, if that happened to me, I would be so enraged. <laughs> all right, but those implementers were paid by us. They are still being paid by us, the Americans, the taxpayers. Uh, the torture and this detention, that are, they are being sanctioned by our representatives, those we have elected and we have been sustaining in, in, in the United States Congress. And our president. So how could we not be 100% guilty on this? The implementers would not even exist and do these without us sustaining it. Well, absolutely. I mean, I agree. And I think that it's appalling the kind of discussions that have been happening throughout this year. Um, the scaremongering about closing Guantanamo, um, trying to find a way to, to get this place to shut down, to move people to the U.S. mainland so that those who can be put forward for trials can have trials, and the rest of the people 
you know, new homes can be found for these people. We can bring this horrendous story to the end. Um, there are so many people who uh, reach a new level of hysteria that I've never heard before about what kind of, um, you know, extraordinary, extraordinarily evil human beings all these people are supposed to be. How, you know, how they should have less rights than the people who are being punished after conviction, um, you know, in some of your uh, hardest prisons where, you know, I don't think anybody should be under any illusions that um, the, the worst parts of the ordinary prison regime that you have in the United States are pretty abominable. Um, but that's not enough. People want worse. I, I, you know, I, I, I fail to understand that, really. Well, maybe it's because with their, uh, or with, with our people, is the fact that they know with that level of humiliation and torture and, and abuse, I mean, a lot of people would turn to monsters even if they were innocent. Not that these people turn into monsters. Maybe that, in a way, shows that these people know what we've done to these people. Well, maybe. Um, you know, I don't know whether that, there's that much logic involved. I mean, I think, you know, so much of this is about fear and about vengeance um, related to the 9-11 attacks. And, you know, and, and I understand in some ways both of those elements, but, that you know, unless you deal with them constructively, it's really not very helpful to anybody. But there is an element of racism here in, in, in a lot of people's motivations. Um, and I think it would be it would be foolish not to say that that's happening, because I think if you substituted uh, the same kind of things happening to white Americans, say, um, it, would, it would shock people. It would shock people deeply. So, you know, these people have been dehumanized, and part of the way that they've been able to be dehumanized is because they're Muslims, because they're not white Americans, um, you know, because all these things can be played upon. Um, otherwise, you know, I would say... The fact that the prison is, is you know, um, not closing uh, on, the, on the, the promised time, that it's a year um, after Obama said that it would close, one year added to the seven that these men have endured so far. Now, you know, we don't know. When we eventually get to, to um, sort out people who have been put forward for trial, when eventually dozens more people have been sent home or have been found new countries, there's going to be, I think, and I don't know how many of these people there are, but there are going to be people that are going to be kind of found in the last rooms at Guantanamo who are deranged, totally deranged. Um, you know, people who have been on hunger strike for years um, as the only way that they could protest about the, the extraordinarily um, inhumane and unjust conditions in which they've been detained for all these years. People who've lost their minds along the way and I think there are probably, you know, there may be many of them. I know that when the Tipton Three, these guys from Britain, came out in 2004, they said that at that point they reckoned that there were, you know, 50 prisoners in Guantanamo who'd lost their minds. Um, we don't know. Nobody knows. The administration may know. The military may know. But not everybody in Guantanamo is represented by a lawyer, even to this day. Um, and over, over the last few years, a lot of the lawyers don't get to see their clients because their clients have given up hope. They've given up all hope that it means anything. They, they're not impressed by the High Court, by the Supreme Court rulings that have happened. They're not impressed by it because it makes no difference. It doesn't lead to them getting out. Um, and before so, we move on, Andy, how about the radical, radicalization of those innocents who, are then, who were then released? Can you well, give us a few examples of that? Of the ones that it's happened to. Right, the innocents who were radicalized through the process. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've heard, you know, I've heard about two or three people um, in Yemen, apparently, um, who, were, who were radicalized in Guantanamo, or maybe they weren't radicalized. You know, maybe these were people who were on a mission before they were captured. I mean, that, you know, I, was, I wouldn't argue that there aren't people in Guantanamo um, who, who were involved in terrorism. I mean, I've always said that the numbers of people who, who are genuinely dangerous, um, intelligence estimates reckon that that's between two dozen and 40, say, something like that. Um, it may include other people who, um, you know, nobody realized quite how motivated these people are. Or it could very well be that they were radicalized through their experiences. 
But you know, my right. my the, primary the definition of it is more subjective. My father was tortured by Shah's regime, by Slovak. Okay, he was a surgeon, and I was about three, three and a half years old when they took him and they pulled his toenails one by one because they thought he was a communist. Okay, and I know what that did to me. And I know what that did to me throughout my, you know, uh, even teenage years and then as an adult. So I wouldn't call that radicalization, but I would call it to not only the foreign policy of the United States, but what CIA was about and, and what, therefore, the U.S. government stood for when it came to other nations. You know, not civil liberties here are extremely important. The human rights extremely important or maybe it's no longer as important. But when it comes to the other side of the world, those standards don't apply. So when I'm talking about radicalization, I don't mean Islamic radicalization or, oh, my God, these people turn into terrorists. But I'm talking about if it, if it were me, and once upon a time it were, it would be about, okay, it would be my mission to do something about it, not necessarily terrorism, but activism. And that right. is to wake wake the people up here because most people don't know we are still paying. So maybe maybe it is mischaracterization by, by saying radicalization. But the change, the transformation that occur, I mean, I really don't buy the fact that people can come out of the six, seven years of their lives and say, oh, there were implementers and we forgive the people. And, you know, they didn't have anything to do with anything. You know, we don't go for an eye for an eye. I, it just doesn't go because I grew up in Middle East and I know how we felt and I was not the only one. I yeah, was yeah. not the only one who was the recipient, so I just can't see that. Well, I think I think probably your main point that you're making, and I agree with you absolutely, is that is that even let's say that the guys themselves that this has happened to um, somehow you know managed to rise above this, the knock-on effect that it has. You know, on 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 family, on friends, on a on a wider circle of people. Um, none of this, all of this, is counterproductive. Now, you know, I know that the the Obama administration, to some extent, recognizes this because they've spoken about it regularly. Um, you know, they've they've made a point of saying. In fact, they started off by saying this is counterproductive. I think they thought that might be a winner. Um, in this propaganda war, it's very difficult to have anything that's going to be a winner. But, you know, there certainly have been key officials who've recognized that it is counterproductive. And, you know, there's one example in Guantanamo that always struck me of somebody who was demonstrating exactly what happened. And it's the same thing that happened in Iraq. When you look at Iraq where, you know, all the young people, all the men were seized from an area randomly. They were gone for months. Were they ever going to come back? Is this really a way to win hearts and minds? And this was a this was a, a landowner who was held in Guantanamo. I think he was released in about 2005. But he had one of these tribunals. And he said, look, I know what happened here is that I got sold to you. And, uh, and you're, you don't realize what's going on. And anybody here who says to you what's going on, you don't listen. Now, okay, I'll wait here until you find out that you've made a mistake. And maybe I will go home and I'll be okay about it. But... I have, back home, I have 10 sons, and they're not going to forgive you for what's happened. Exactly. I have, in my extended family, I have 300 people who are going to be very angry with you about what happened to me. In the district in which I live, there are thousands of people who are going to be angry with you about what you did to me. And he just laid it out. I mean, this was a guy speaking for a couple of minutes in one of these idiotic tribunals that they had who demonstrated, in a nutshell, why hearts and minds was lost. And, th and that's been true everywhere in Iraq and Afghanistan. Well and it's said. true in the wider Middle East, obviously. Well, and what it is is a blowback from barbaric tactics that uh, apparently Bush and Cheney and uh, the coterie around them thought was actually going to project a real mean image for the United States. And uh, they appeared to think that that would have a desired effect of intimidating uh, uh, opponents or enemies when, in fact, it has created new ones and hardened the antipathy of those who were already predisposed uh, to dislike the United States. We're talking with Andy Worthington here on Boiling Frogs. I want you to visit his website, Andy Worthington, his name, .co .uk. 
He updates frequently and covers a lot of the uh, developments and uh, breaking stories related to those held at Guantanamo and in other parts of the world by the United States. Andy, uh, as our listeners hear this in mid-January or later 2010, uh, the deadline will come and go uh, for the president's promised closure of Guantanamo. Now, before I ask you to comment uh, in a critical way on that failure, what has been accomplished since Obama took office? How many prisoners have been uh, released or repatriated or sent to third countries to date? Well, um, you know, it's funny. When you ask me what's been accomplished today, I, I actually found myself struggling to, to, to work out quite what had been. Um, the, the closing date of a year, the deadline that was set, was such a, um, was, was such a, a, a principal thing to do. It was such an important thing to do. It was the right thing to do. And the failure to, do, to achieve that contaminates everything, I think, really. Um, very few people uh, were released. I mean, in the in the first 10 months uh, when Obama was in office, 30 prisoners were released. Back in May, the prisoners in Guantanamo were telling their lawyers, having cheered six months before when he won the election, they were telling their lawyers it was better under Bush. At least people got released under Bush. So then of the 774 to date, uh, how many have been released? What is the remainder population here as we speak in mid-December? There were um, there were actually 779 in the end. When okay. I wrote my book, um, I didn't know they were still stealthily bringing a few extra people in. Okay. Um, they have um, been released to 569. 563 have been released. Six people have died in Guantanamo. Mm -hmm. um, that leaves, um, in, in, at, the, at this point in December, 210 prisoners there um, with, with potentially up to 40 facing trials with apparently um, the, the latest figures given by the administration, 115 people who are now looking for new homes or who can be returned to their own home countries. The government is very slow at returning people, um, even when they have um, you know, a, a home to go to where they're not going to face torture, as many of the men do. Um, and between those figures, um, well, they haven't worked it out yet. Mm -hmm. um, they've, been, they've spent much of the year um, talking about what, to me, is really one of the most horrific ideas of, of all, um, that they would have to have a new form of preventive detention to hold people that they that they thought were too dangerous to release, but that they um, couldn't put on trial. Um, and you have to ask yourself, well, why can't you put them on trial? Well, it's because your evidence is contaminated by the use of torture. So are you saying that you trust what was extracted through the use of torture? Are you saying that, the, that we must have a way of preventively detaining people that we can't try, and that you don't think that this might drift to other parts of the criminal justice system, for example. Um, you know, and it really is the most terrific idea that, that you start holding people outside of the legal system, and that Guantanamo was the kind of accidental entree into this new world, um, because I could easily see that being, being used on, you know, difficult neighborhoods. Well, let's round people up before they commit the crimes. So why not? Yeah. Now, Andy, if you would characterize your view of the step that President Obama took as his attorney general, Eric Holder, announced that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and four others would be tried for the 9-11 events in New York City. And that won some applause from progressive communities and those who embrace constitutional rule. But uh, as the president was traveling, I believe he was in China at the time, uh, he then uh, backpedaled uh, with a, a series of comments leading up to the notion that if somehow Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was able to beat the rap and was able to win acquittal or at least a, a hung jury in a trial in New York, that we didn't need to worry because he wouldn't be released anyway. And it spoke to a predetermined outcome uh, to the the legal process, and Eric Holder uh, tipped his hand in much the same way. Uh, 
And then this kind of safety catch for the right wing in this country and even some Democrats who attack the president over the idea of bringing prisoners from Guantanamo to their state here in the U.S. Um, I felt it sent a very conflicted, confusing message that said that uh, we're going to move the show trials from Guantanamo to New York, but, hey, there's still show trials. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, was, um, I was also very shocked. I thought, it was, I thought, apart from anything else, it was unnecessary. I mean, I think it, it probably demonstrated um, how influential the right wing is in the United States, that it was really, you know, a reply, a direct reply to the kind of criticism that was coming from Fox was to say, hey, we're not going to let them off. Now, you know, what that betrayed was how closely they've been scrutinizing everything at Guantanamo because they're so terrified still of making a mistake. Um, The stakes are regarded as different when it comes to Guantanamo than they are to any other part of the criminal justice system. And again, it's part of the problem with reinterpreting it. If you start worrying, scrutinizing so carefully, you know, are we going to win the case? Is this, how is this going to work? And if it doesn't look like we're going to win it, we've got a second-tier justice system with, less, um, with, with lower standards, which is the military commissions that we said we wouldn't revive, but hey, presto, we brought them back. And we're holding a third option open as well, which is that um, if we don't even think we can, we can put this secondary um, inferior system together, we're just going to hold these guys. We'll see if we can put that one out and keep that one going. Um, the whole thing, when you shift it to any other system, what are you guys doing here? What you're saying is, we want, we want to protect everything. We want to nail everything down. We don't want any, any of the actual mess that happens with a judicial system, which is that I think that most of us can sleep well at night because we know that generally it works okay. Bad guys get put away after trials. You know, we're not totally swamped with um, a failure of the system where, you know, the wrong people are walking free and the wrong people are getting imprisoned. It kind of works. That's what we have. People get sentenced. They leave prison. Some of them go back to crime. What this is all leading towards is, is, is essentially playing into the hands of the most unthinkably monstrous people who actually don't want anybody ever to be released from prison in case they might do something again, who would like to push for a kind of permanent prison state where, you know, the messy difficulty is letting people out. Let's just lock people up forever. So it was, it's all too calculated. And, you know, and it it strikes me that the fear-mongering of Cheney and of the right-wingers, this whole foundation myth of Guantanamo, has seeped into their way of thinking as well. And they're not accepting that actually you put people on trial or you find a way to let these people go. And you may let a handful of people go who are going to come back and do something. They show up in an al-Qaeda recruitment video in the Yemen. Who knows? Whatever it is. Are you saying that this isn't comparable to the rest of the world, as messy as it is, and that somebody serves a sentence of 20 years for some crime and comes out and some people commit crimes again? That's what happens. This is the real world. What we're now trying to construct is some fictional world of complete safety. And what it's, what it's led us to do is to overthrow all the basic principles by which we live. So, you know, setting up crooked, crooked systems, uh, judicial systems, when you can't trust the real one, um, and toying with the ideas, you know, um, educated people um, who are really not from the same political background as Dick Cheney and David Ellington, sitting around and honestly talking about how they can preventively detain people for the rest of their lives without a charge or a trial. It really is um, it's an extraordinary betrayal of um, the, way, the way in which we're supposed to live and our relationship with the law. Andy, can you give us a general comparison between the United States and the United Kingdom when it comes to, first, the general attitudes towards these uh, detention and Guantanamo, etc., but also the media? How, how would you compare the two when it comes to this particular issue? Well, I would say that, you know, what happened in this country was that, was that it, you know, eventually the British prisoners became an issue. Um, I would say that what happened, and I'm sure this happened in other countries, was that it was convenient for people um, to bash the Americans 
Um, but but it was much more difficult for them when a mirror was held up to them about, A, their own complicity in what happened, um, their own willing complicity, because, you know, Bush said, you're either with us or against us. And he went around the world saying to people, are you going to help us out willingly or, or are we, are we going to get heavy with you? Um, you know, so that everybody got involved in the renditions and, uh, you know, let us fly our planes through your airports and share intelligence with us. Now, some people did that very willingly um, and, 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 and are not really that willing to look at what they themselves have done. And in fact, what the British did was, you know, we had our own very willing spin-off regime um, and nobody cares about that. Nobody cares about the fact that British people, that people in Britain um, were held without charge or trial for three years in a maximum security prison here. And when judges finally ruled that that was illegal, then they came up with ways to hold them in their houses under house arrest. Um, they found other ways to imprison them again, pending deportation to countries where they're not allowed to return them to because they face the risk of torture. Um, you know, and this is Britain. Um, other countries have, ha in, in the West have had their own ways of dealing with it. Canada had its own shameful house arrest system as well. Um, it's pretty disgraceful all around. So it was easy for people to bash the Americans, but it has honestly been harder for them to look at what they're doing themselves. And people in Britain ought to be ashamed. And in Britain, nobody cares. In Britain, people know what Guantanamo is, but they don't know what control orders are necessarily. They don't care. They don't care that dozens of, uh, of Muslims are being deprived of their liberty through some weird extrajudicial system that's been set up by the British government. So, you know, it's not good everywhere. Everybody got infected by it. And, Andy, uh, in the last uh, <clears throat> 9 to 12 months, excuse me, we have seen the Obama administration on front channels and back channels try to uh, uh, coax the British government and British courts into maintaining levels of secrecy and uh, essentially denying former inmates at Guantanamo access to evidence and information that they could use to sue the U.S. government, their captors, uh, the companies that uh, renditioned them in the torture taxis, um, those sorts of cases. What, what's the current state of that? Because it appears that at times the British courts have bowed to the U.S. government and at other times, they have uh, refused to do so. Well, you know, again, I don't think it's—I don't think it's that simple, Peter. I think that what's happening is um, is a two-way, a lot of two-way traffic between the British and the American governments about how they can both cover their asses about what what they've been doing for the last eight years. You know, the problem is much more explicitly laid out everywhere outside the United States. What happened was illegal. Everybody knew that what happened was illegal from the first moment that they heard about it. From the first moment that their intelligence agents were asked to go and see their nationals in Kandahar or Bagram, they saw the evil of those places. They saw how illegal everything was, and they played along with it. Um, now, they knew that that was not only wrong, but that they could get done for it, <laughs> honestly. The only country that didn't recognize that was, was the Bush administration, because it was rewriting the laws. You know, it had lawyers rewriting, you know, explaining that torture wasn't torture so that you could torture. Um, now, I think that, it, that it's different now. Um, and I think that, that um, the Obama administration will now be aware that it is subjected to the same laws as everybody else. So what it's trying to do is put a big paper bag over everything the Bush administration did and say we moved on, um, when clearly we haven't moved on until it's been addressed until there's been accountability. But when it comes to these issues and letting any of the story out, um, I think both sides are in it, absolutely. They're talking to each other. What's the best way that we can shut this down? So it's coming from the British government or it's, you know, we've had threats from the US government. That's a good one. Let's do that. Um, you know, and, and I don't think anybody's being open and honest about it. Mm-hmm. Andy, as we wrap up here, I want to direct people again to your website at andyworthington.co.uk. Your book is available in the United States called The Guantanamo Files, The Stories of the 774 Detainees in America's Illegal Prison. And what is the status of the film Outside the Law? Is that available on YouTube or uh, any other way for our listeners in the U.S.? It is available um, to buy on DVD at the moment, while we're still looking at other ways to get it out um, to people. Um, if 
people go to a website called Spectacle Productions mm -hmm. um, or, or follows it through through pages on my site. But if you can go to Spectacle Productions, you'll find um, the film mentioned there, and it's available on DVD and can be um, flown anywhere around the world for people to see. All right. Well, Andy, thank you for your top-flight work on this very important subject. I really appreciate it, and uh, I wish you did have uh, more competition in the U.S. media. But uh, you have provided a great service to our nation and to the world by bringing light to uh, this very, very dark series of issues. Many thanks, Andy. Well, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Savelle. It's been really lovely to talk to you both.